As we open God's word together, let's ask for his blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, teach us good judgment and knowledge, for we believe in your commandments. You are good and do good. Teach us your statutes so that we may keep your precepts with our whole hearts, delight in your law, and learn your will in Christ. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. While you're doing that, I'd just like to remind uh, Emma, if you would come up at the end, sorry, I know to call on you in the middle of the service, Um, but if you could come up and stand so the congregation can greet you, and if you could come forward and welcome our sister uh, at the conclusion of the service, uh, I'd appreciate that very much. Uh, So Philippians chapter 4, if you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Philippians, and we've come to chapter 4, and this morning we're going to consider together verses 8 and 9 of Philippians chapter 4. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, well, these, these two verses really serve as a summary of everything Paul has said to this point. He's coming to the end of the letter. Um, he's going to be shortly giving a kind of thank you note to the Philippian church that will follow these verses. But this is really the last part of the argument that he's making in the book. And often when you come to a conclusion, you try to tie together everything you've said um, in a bow to try to bring together the various different concepts um, and try to bring it together in a nice, neat, and easy way. And so this really is the conclusion of what Paul has been saying all along where he has told them what the Christian mind should look like so that we can think in the right way. He wants our thinking to be right so that our living will be right, uh, so we'll do the things that are pleasing to God. And he's been telling us that as we think after Christ and we live after Christ, we will also follow after Christ to glory. Um, And so that's been one of his themes all along. Christian thinking leads to Christian living, and that leads by God's grace to glory. Um, that's what he's been saying over and over again. That's what I've been saying over and over again. So maybe, maybe you're tired of hearing that. But it's, it's Paul's point and our point to try to drive that home into our minds. Uh, because so often as Christians, we want our lives to be better. We want them to better reflect what God wants. We want them to be in step with the Spirit. And God has reminded us in this book again and again that to be in step with the Spirit, to do what God calls us to do, is a matter of getting our minds right, that we might get our lives right. Um, And that as we struggle with these things in in our lives, we should be comforted to know that by grace, through faith, um, the obedience that comes as a fruit of that faith, all of this struggle in this life leads eventually to glory. Um, And so this has been a book of great rejoicing, and Paul is coming to the end of what he wants to say. Um, We might say that's obvious when he starts by saying, finally, finally. Um, Now, we noted before when Paul said finally, that when Paul uses that word, what he really means is from now on. 
um, from now on. So this is not just the last thing he wants to say. This is the thing he really wants to linger with them, to stay with them, to characterize where they go from here. And so this is what he wants them to do from now on. And he's summarizing everything that should characterize the Christian life. Um, And he's saying, from now on, focus your thinking on what is real, on what is right, and on what is pleasing to the Lord. I know I should have been able to think of a third R, but I couldn't. So uh, you you have to just take it the way it comes. Um, We're to focus our thinking, Paul says, and the Spirit wants us focused on the things that are real, the things that are right, and the things that are pleasing. Um, And that's what's to characterize their lives and, of course, characterize our lives as Christians. And to do that, we need to focus our thinking. Uh, That's what Paul wants in these verses, uh, for us to think about these things, he says at the end of verse 8. Think about all of these things um, so that our minds are where they need to be so that they can produce the kinds of lives that are pleasing to God. Um, And so we keep having this repeated refrain, but we need to have this ingrained into our minds. We need to think about these things that Paul gives us, these things that he summarizes as excellent and praiseworthy. Um, That's where our focus should be. That's how we should think about these things. Um, Our minds should ponder them. Um, Not just a fleeting thought. Uh, That's kind of the challenge we can have as Christians, right? We come Sunday morning, we hear hear a sermon, it it goes in our ears, and then um, sometimes it doesn't get down into our hearts and, and run around in our lives. It goes in one ear and out the other. And that's why Paul says, these are things I want us to think about, to focus on, not just to think about for a minute and then pass by, but to have continually in our minds that we continue to reflect on these things, that we continue to meditate on these truths, that these things that are excellent and praiseworthy are, are characterizing what is always on our minds. Characterize the kinds of things we're focused on, characterize the kind of things our minds are filled with, um, so that we keep on course in that way. Um, these things that are excellent and praiseworthy. And Paul gives sort of six virtues here that we're to meditate on. And if we don't, you know, sort of develop them and think about them, they remain sort of things that we're told to do that we don't really understand the fullness of them. Uh, we need further explanation. Um, and, and so we need to develop what, the sense of what Paul is doing here. Um, we, we all need that. Um, when I was a kid, sometimes my parents would say, go clean your room. Um, and I would clean my room by going and just sort of kicking everything that's in sight under the bed or in the closet. And maybe you've done that. You pile a closet so full of junk so you can just get the door shut. Um, and then you say, I've cleaned my room. And of course, what do mom and dad do, boys and girls, when you, when you do that? They come in your room and they start looking. I mean, they know to look under the bed. They know to look in the closet. And then they give further instructions. They let you know that cleaning the room means not just kicking everything under the bed, but actually putting the things where they belong putting the toys away, putting your clothes in the dirty clothes place, you know, doing the things that you're supposed to do. And Paul's doing that for us here. He's not just saying, think about these things and leaving us to figure out what, what to do. He's coming in and saying, now here's what I'm talking about in these various areas. And so maybe a helpful way for us to understand these six virtues is to put them in three categories. Um, that Paul first talks about what is real, then about what is right, and then about what is pleasing. 
And I think if we group those together, we can understand better what the Lord is calling us to do. Where are we to be focusing our thinking? What are we to be filling our minds with? Well, the first thing we're to do is to fill our minds and to focus our attention on what is real. On what is real. Those first two characteristics have to do with reality. Whatever is true and whatever is honorable. True has the sense of things as they really are. Um, The things that are real and important. Um, To focus us on what is really true in the world. And also that which is honorable. The things that are true, that are serious, that are fitting, or we might say dignified. Um, There's a certain weight to the truth. There's a certain weight to the reality that's been sketched out for us that are important for Christians to keep in our minds. It's important for us to keep in our minds some fundamental realities that are glorious for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Right? The, the first thing that we have to keep in our minds as being true and honorable is that God is our Father. Right? That our relationship with God is real. Um, that, that's something that God's people should never lose sight of. That's one of the things that Paul has been celebrating as he's gone through this letter of joy. Where do we find joy? We find joy first in the fact that God is our Father. Right? The God who lives in the heavens, who does, who's almighty and does all things well, he's become our Father for Christ's sake. That should be a great encouragement to God's people, that that is the reality Do you see how we have to, as God's people, keep our minds focused on truths like that? Not lose sight of that reality that God has become our Father and that He's a Father who loves us? Right? That that has to fill our minds and hearts. That that reality. God is our Father. God is our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself for us. Paul shared that as we've gone out. Christ has made us his own, Paul has said in this letter. Christ has given us his mind so that we we can think and follow after the way in which he walked. Christ is in us by his spirit. He's given us his righteousness by faith. Remember when Paul had celebrated, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I have a righteousness that is mine in Christ, the righteousness that comes through faith. This is the reality for God's people. And that should be a great encouragement to us. That God is our Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us, has given us His righteousness, worked faith in us, and that His Spirit dwells with us. That His Spirit is with us for our encouragement and for our help. That He is moving in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. This is the reality in which God's people live. Isn't that a glorious reality? Isn't that something we should want to focus our minds on, fill our minds with as we live this life? That this is real. That this is true. This serious and dignified truth is really ours if we put our faith and trust in Christ. This is who we are. We need that reality fixed in our minds because we live in a world that questions that reality. 
We live in a world that's always trying to distract our minds and sketch alternate realities. Um, Paul has celebrated these realities throughout the book, but he's always reminded us too that there are rivals in this world that we face. We've heard of opponents of Paul. We've heard of dogs. We've heard of evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, enemies of the cross of Christ. Um, And what do they do? They interfere with that message of things as they truly are. They try to sketch an alternate reality for us. They'll say there is no God. There is no God caring for you. This is, a, this is a cosmic roll of the dice, and you just never know what number's coming up. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And people will come and say, you know, the reality you've sketched for yourself is a, is a foolish reality. It's, it's a story fabricated by people who just couldn't handle living in the real world. There are people that will oppose the real world against the world that God has sketched in his word. And say that what God has said is not real. What we say is real. And the world is constantly trying to take what God has presented to us as true and honorable and call it false and trivial. And that's why God's people have to cling to what is real. Um, we should never talk as God's people about living life in the real world. Sometimes we talk that way, as if what we do on Sunday is disconnected from the real world. What Paul's done in focusing our attention, what God's word does always is reminding us there's a world that is far more real than this world. Heaven is in that sense far more real than this world. That's where it's the most real What you are before God is more real than anything else. And what God's word is gloriously reminding his people is, you want to know what's real? God is your father. And Christ is your savior. And the spirit is your helper. Keep your mind focused on that. And when people tell you that's not true, they're wrong. It's the most true thing you'll ever hear. It's the most serious thing you'll ever hear. It's the most dignified and honorable thing that can be said. Reality is important and we have to cling with our minds to what is real. Because what is real and your your perception of what is real colors your perception of what is right. Paul says we have to focus on what is real and we also have to focus on what is right. That, That a consideration of the true and the honorable ought to lead to a consideration of what is just and pure. These are not categories of reality. These are categories of morality. Things that are just and things that are pure. Things that are just are the things that are right according to God's law. And the things that are pure are without blemish or corruption. Things that are uncontaminated. We have to think about God's law, God's justice, God's just commands, and not let them be defiled, that they be kept pure. Um, and, And Paul has taken pains to not just point out what is real in this letter, but to point out what is right. Right? He's exhorted God's people to live a life 
worthy of the gospel, right? In a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We are to be people that approve what is excellent, who stand for the truth of God's gospel. Remember, use those military terms earlier, standing firm in the faith, holding the line together, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel, to do those things that are, that are just, that are pure, to live for one another, right? To not just be focusing on our own interests, but to focus on the interests of one another as the people of God. Those things are just, they're, they're pure. To live lives that are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. In love and humility to consider others better than ourselves. To live always for the glory of our God, working out our salvation in fear and trembling. Do you think those things are excellent? Are they praiseworthy? These are the kinds of things that are right. These are the kinds of things that God's people should be concerned about. They're just, they're pure. They should be what characterize our lives. And we need to maintain what is right against anybody who would seek to defile it. Um, what is right and what is real are really connected to one another, aren't they? If you can, if you can shake what's real, you can also redefine what's right. right? That, that was one of the, the, the serpent's first tricks in the garden was to come and at, to Adam and even sketch an alternate reality for them. You know why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit? He's a selfish, closed-fisted God. And he knows that when you eat it, you will be like him. And so really the right thing to do is to take the fruit and eat it. Do you see how sketching an alternative reality? God is a selfish, closed-fisted God. There's blessing he's trying to withhold leads to the consideration of an alternate morality. Do what is unjust and impure and disobey the Lord. It's interesting how often you can go back to the first temptation, the first sin in the garden, and see how every other sin grows out of that. The devil has, you know, an old playbook. You know, I was watching football yesterday and they, they, they ran a play and they said, oh, that's such an old play, that's, that's such an old play. Um, it's not something you usually see in a new playbook. Because they're always coming up with new plays, right? They always are doing something. Devil has one playbook, and he really has two different plays, and he's been running those same two plays, and he's been running over humanity with them his whole entire career. Has God said? What God said is not true. Those are his two plays, and they work on us all the time. Because he gets us to question the reality Right? God is a closed-fisted God who doesn't want you to have good things. You know, sort of blinding us to the fact that he put them in a garden filled with good things. And in the center of the garden that was filled with good things, he put one good thing that he said, that's not for you. And the reason that's not for you, because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Right? That's not for you because it would be bad for you. I have your best interests at heart. I'm not a, a closed-fisted God. I'm a generous God. But see, if you can question the reality, you can question the morality. Um, we don't, I think, look, need to look very far in our own culture to see how that's happening. 
that we're starting to question the realities that we used to take very seriously. It used not to not be very confusing which bathroom you were supposed to use. Right, but somehow that's become confusing. Um, somehow that reality has been questioned, and it leads to a different morality, doesn't it? And so what is God saying to his people? You need to keep in mind what is real so that you keep in mind what is right. Those things that are just and pure. Those things that should be lived out in the Christian life. Again, thinking leads to living. How we think leads to how we live. That's where Paul brings us in the first part of verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Reality should lead to morality. Knowing what is right, thinking about what is right, should lead us to not just thinking about what is right, but thinking about and doing what is right. I taught these things to you, Paul says. You received them with approval. You saw them in me. I illustrated them to you. So what you saw and what you heard, now you do it. Live it out. Practice what I preached even as I myself practiced it. And he knows that filling their hearts and minds with what is real and what is right will help them not just to think about these things, but to practice them. Um, And that's what we want. Because when we focus on what is real and we focus on what is right and we live those things out in our lives, we live lives that are pleasing. Um, That's the last thing Paul wants us to focus on. Focus first on the things that are real, whatever is true and honorable. Second, on whatever is right, whatever is just and pure. And finally, whatever is pleasing. Whatever is lovely and commendable. Um, You know, we we can be so focused as God's people on what is real and what is right, and we can lose sense of what is lovely and commendable. That there's a certain shape these things should take in our lives. Um, To not just be true, but also to be lovely. To be commendable. Um, This word lovely here is, is somewhat unique in the New Testament. This is the only place you'll find it. And it has this sense of something that causes people to be pleased with it. Something that has an agreeable aspect. It's attractive when you see it. Um, It's almost inexplicable in its its definition, right? It's the kind of lovely thing that you see and and it's lovely and it draws you to itself, even though you can't necessarily articulate what is it that you find so attractive about. It's just that lovely character uh, that's commendable, uh, something that's deserving of approval or deserving of a good reputation. We might say pleasing to the heart and pleasing to the ear. That's what Paul says we're to focus on. Not just the things that are real and right, but the things that are, that are pleasing that are lovely, that are commendable. And we should focus on those things. First and foremost, as they're pleasing to God. Right? We should be focused mostly on the things that are 
pleasing to God. That's where Paul had focused our attention early on in the letter. Uh, that we should do things and be, live lives that are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We want to do the things that are lovely and commendable to him. Right, like those beautiful passages that talk about the, the things that God's people do coming up as a sweet aroma before him. That's, that's pleasing in his nose. The things that are pleasing in his sight. The things that he finds lovely and commendable. Holy things, good things, those things that the scriptures are filled with. Um, we should be after lives that are pleasing to God in our thinking, in our practice. Um, we should be living lives that are pleasing to the other servants of the Lord. We don't just live lives with a self-focus or just a Godward focus. We also live our lives with a focus toward our neighbor. We do the things that are pleasing to God, but also that are pleasing to the servants of the Lord. Right? Th those who Paul said were his joy and crown. Um, the neighbors that agree in the Lord together. We want to do the things that are lovely and commendable for our neighbor's sakes as well, particularly for the household of faith, but even before the world. We want to be seen as lovely and commendable. Right? That, that was one of the, the things that Paul had talked about, that beautiful passage in, in Philippians 2, 15 and 16, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Right? This, this commendability, is this loveliness is not just to be seen in the church. It should be visible to the world. The world should see that we think about and we practice things that are lovely and commendable. And why, why does the world need to see that from us? Because the world is living in a very dark place. The world is living in a very dark place where lights don't shine. That's not filled with loveliness and commendable things, but filled with ugliness um, and things that shouldn't even be spoken of. And it's filled with people who are restless and who are looking for light. I think Augustine was right. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. There are restless people in the world. And when the, when the church is a place where we are not just thinking about lovely and commendable things, but we are living in ways that are lovely and commendable, it's attractive to the world. It may begin with that simple question. What is the reason for the hope that you have? Because I'm looking around at a dark world where I don't see much hope, but you're living a life that seems that there's hope, that there's a light shining in the darkness. What's the reason for your hope? And being able to share that with them. What is the reason, the hope that we have? And that they would see how we love one another. Um, how we not just think about, but live in lovely and commendable ways. So the world might be attracted to us. <laughs> That's why we should, as much as possible, avoid living as Christians in ways that are ugly. Um, in ways that which the world would see it and say, why would I want any part in that? 
sometimes grieves me to watch the way Reformed people argue about theology on social media. They're at each other's throats about these theological truths, and they may be important truths. Um, but, but I watch the way they argue, and I think, you know, if I was standing back as a non-Christian and said, if this is what you guys are like, I don't want anything to do with this. There's nothing lovely about it. There's nothing that would attract anybody to it. There's nothing commendable. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times where you have to stand up for the truth, um, regardless of how people take it. Um, but the Bible is always reminding us that the truth needs to be spoken with love. That even in, in times where people are standing up for true things, they need to be loving. That even when you need to say a hard word to somebody who you see in sin and you're seeking to restore, that you say that hard word with gentleness. I see a lot of people saying, well, I'm just like, you know, Paul, Paul confronted Peter to his face. Um, and some people seem to think that that means that Paul got in Peter's face. Um, and, and we know that he stood for the truth and he stood for the church truth before the church. And we know that he did something that restored Peter. But he did it in such a way that Peter would later come along and say, listen to Paul. He says some hard things. Um, and unbelievers will twist them as they do with most of the scriptures. We don't know how exactly Paul approached it, but we know that he managed to say hard truths that needed to be heard in a way that restored the relationship between Peter and Paul and the church. And so often when I hear someone say, well, I'm just being like Paul in Peter's face, um, I said, I always think to myself, what you're saying has no hope of restoring this relationship or bringing you two together. Because Paul did it, spoke the truth in love. He spoke it for Peter's sake and for the church's sake. And even though he spoke with the requisite boldness, he must have also spoken with the requisite gentleness that was able to reconcile the two and bring them together. The church needs a lot more that's lovely and commendable, that's attractive to people, and not just on social media, but in the real world. So the church is not a place where people look at and they say, that's not a place where things are lovely and commendable. That's a place where things are ugly and disreputable. And we should want to do that for the Lord's glory. Um, to live in ways that are lovely and commendable. To fill our minds with those things that it would work themselves out in practice. Why was Paul able to practice those things before Peter? Because he filled his mind with those things. He meditated on what was lovely and commendable, and it worked itself out in his life. And that's what we are to try to do. Not just to hear it, Paul says, but what you heard from me, you saw in me. You saw how I lived it. You saw how I applied it. Follow me. Even as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he gives us a lot of things to do in this passage, doesn't he? Um, it, it's a lot to do to think about. There's a lot just to think about, right? Much less to try to practice. That's a whole other difficulty. But the living and the practice, what does he hold out to us as the blessedness of doing this? What, what is the payoff for all this struggle in the mind and in the life? Well, how does he end verse 9? 
What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There's the payoff. Why think about these things? Why so struggle with the reality and what is right and what is pleasing and struggle to live it out before a world that will spit it back in your face so often? Because however the world receives it, the God of peace will be with you. Remember that just a verse ago he had said, or two verses ago he had said, and the peace of God will guard your heart. And that was unique in the sense that it's the kind of peace that only God enjoys. The kind of a peace you enjoy when you're controlling everything and when you have all power over everything and you are never put off by anything else because you are in control of all things. That peace, Paul's bringing that idea back in. Whatever struggles you'll have in the mind and in the life, the truth will be that the God of peace will be with you. You live in the light of that reality with His presence, with that comfort. Um, I always remember J.C. Ralph saying, the Christian life is hard, but it pays. Um, It pays in glory. It pays in the presence of the God of peace. Now and forevermore, who will set to peace all the things that are in tension in this world. And bring us to that place where everything is excellent and praiseworthy. And where everything is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. Christian, think about these things and practice them with the Spirit's help for God's glory. Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, would you help us to, from now on, think about these things that you've put before us. We thank you for them being so excellent and praiseworthy. We pray that you would help us to keep in mind the glorious reality that we enjoy in Christ Jesus, to keep in mind the things that are right, that we might know them and do them according to your word, that we might always be reflecting on and practicing those things which are pleasing in your sight. Lord, may we live in such a way the Lord, that the world would see how we love you and love one another and be attracted to your church um, so that they would be attracted to what is lovely and commendable as your people shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Help us to do all of this for your glory, um, not to earn something from you, but because of what you've given us by grace through faith in Christ, but that you would help us more and more to live lives that are pleasing in your sight, in that confidence that if, when we do these things, we can be assured that the God of peace will be with us. Be with us by your Son and in your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.